Mary Beth uh, preached last semester, but Mary Beth is a mentored ministry student um, here at Embrace, and she, uh, out of all the options out there, all the churches, she wanted to come and, and do her uh, kind of internship that she does through her program at Asbury Seminary um, with Embrace, and, and specifically had a heart for being at a church that um, was reaching out to his community, a church that had people from all different backgrounds, really wanted to grow and be challenged and be pushed. She's also volunteering at Common Good as part of that internship as well, and just growing in all sorts of ways, and I'm just really excited for um, all the work that she's doing now to, to prepare for um, her future, and really, it's not even just preparation, she's doing ministry now, and really blessing and reaching folks each and every week here at the church, and so this is the second time she's preached here on a Sunday morning, and y'all were very gracious, and she did a wonderful job the first time, um, even though we asked her like just a Really, a couple of days in advance uh, to preach on a Sunday morning. Uh, she had already prepared for Monday night, but we needed her on Sunday also because Christina was sick. Um, but she had a little more prep time for this Sunday. Uh, so we're, we're excited to have her here today. And uh, I'm just excited to hear what God is going to share with us. So let me say a prayer for Mary Beth before she begins. God, thank you so much for uh, this wonderful morning. And God, we thank you that you have gifted uh, so many within our community here with the gift of preaching and sharing your word. And Lord, we just thank you that Mary Beth is stepping into that calling and receiving that gift and using it to, to really bless our community and help us all to become more like you. And I just pray you would speak through her today and that all her preparation and work she's put into this, would um, that you would honor that and that you would allow us all to be transformed through our time of, of hearing the word today, Lord. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. Thank you. Howdy. Um, yeah, as John said, I uh, have been serving this church uh, since September at the gathering and at Common Good, so it's really exciting to get to be here again. I did have a little bit more preparation this time, so hope it make a difference. Uh, we'll see. You can tell me afterwards if it was better or worse than the last time. Um, but so I was telling John just last week that working on this sermon has been a fun little puzzle um, because he's laid out this really beautiful groundwork of Holy Week Sunday through Wednesday over the last few weeks. So I get to figure out how to kind of dive right in without just totally going rogue and uh, going too off the rails, but without saying everything he's already said. So very exciting. Um, so if you've been following along for the last four weeks, you know that we've been doing an in-depth study of the last week of Jesus's life on earth. Um, so this story takes up a really significant amount of space in the gospel story, um, but it's not a lot of, it's something that a lot of churches don't spend a ton of time really digging into because it just happens so fast. It's all in a week. So it's really cool that we get to learn about in a lot more depth um, everything that is sort of going on um, throughout the course of that week and all of the things that everybody's experiencing. Um, so because this week, as it is shared in scripture, has a lot of common threads that sort of run through and build upon one another, um, I thought we'd recap just a little bit. So the first major common thread that we've seen each day of Holy Week is increasing conflict with political and religious authorities. So this has also driven Jesus and the other disciples to operate under a lot of secrecy. So we talk about the ways that they do ministry in Jerusalem during the day, and then once it gets dark outside, everybody goes and stays in the suburb of Bethany. So they are not quite so much in the limelight. Um, they... Uh, 
they try to stay out of the eyes of the authorities a lot. So um, we've been talking about the ways that the, this growing tension has shown a light on injustice within the systems of power, corruption within the temple, um, and even the individual shortcomings of Jesus' disciples and his closest followers. So on Palm Sunday, we talked about how Jesus comes into Jerusalem in this very specific and public way, um, and it, this represents a new model of kingship to the public that was very different from the kingship of Caesar, um, and the Roman government perceived that as a threat. Um, on Monday, Jesus enters into the temple, and he protests the behavior of the authorities, and he calls out their selfishness. He turns over tables, and he calls the temple a den of robbers. Uh, and on Tuesday, he returns to the temple, and the religious authorities question him. They try to find any reason to incriminate Jesus on the things that he believes and his teaching. Um, but instead, he draws attention to the poverty of a widow and calls out um, the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who um, use their wealth to hold power over vulnerable people. Uh, and then last week, we talked about Wednesday in the way that at this point in the week, the authorities were ready to arrest Jesus, but they needed to identify a traitor to sell him out. Uh, and they, they, this traitor needed to find an opportunity for them to arrest Jesus. Um, so they end up making a deal with Judas, and he's, he's their traitor. Um, and so meanwhile, we hear this story of a woman who anointed Jesus' feet with oil, and it's this act of very extravagant and intimate worship. Um, and this is sort of a contrast between the way that the disciples have been treating Jesus up until this point. So that piece of the failure of the disciples um, is, is really on display, really, on Thursday. And so this is where we're going to lean in a little bit today. Um, so as you've seen, we've been just laying this groundwork for why everybody's so upset with Jesus um, and why they're looking for reasons to arrest him. And Jesus' response to all of these things is just to continue holding the people of God accountable and to continue advocating for justice within the community. And so as this tension builds each day a little bit more, Thursday is where things really come to a head. Uh, Marcus Borg, who wrote this book that we've been studying on the last week of Jesus's life, he says, Holy Thursday is full of drama. And so since we're in church and we're into confessing sins, I will admit that I love drama. And so I'm really excited that we get to talk about Thursday. There's a lot of drama. So where we left off last week, we just said this woman poured oil on the feet of Jesus and Judas identified himself as a traitor, right? And so from this point on, he's just looking for an opportunity to give Jesus away, right? And so um, as we've mentioned, um, as Jesus has been in Jerusalem, there's a lot of secrecy, right? They, they spend the night in Bethany, and then they do work in Jerusalem. Um, on Thursday, this air of secrecy even infiltrates the culture of the disciples. So when they ask Jesus where they're going to have a Passover meal, Jesus won't even tell them where exactly it's going to be. He sends two of his disciples into Jerusalem and says, you'll meet a man and he'll be carrying a jug of water. And that man will take you to a very secret, undisclosed place. And that will be where uh, we have dinner. So he can't even tell the disciples, go to this place or else Judas might give them away. Uh, it's very clear at this point that Jesus can't even trust the disciples not to interfere with his ministry. 
So this brings us to our Passover meal. So this is um, out of Mark chapter 14, verses 17 through 25. If you want to follow along, it'll be on the screen. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread in the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So talk about drama. The very first words that we hear out of Jesus' mouth are that somebody at the table is going to betray him. So not only is somebody going to betray Jesus, but Jesus knows about it. And he tells the disciples, I know it's going to be one of you. And as it turns out, Jesus is not only going to be betrayed by Judas, he's going to be denied by Peter and abandoned by all of the rest of his disciples. And so even in the face of these accusations, being told that somebody is going to betray Jesus, the disciples are still only concerned about themselves. Did you guys catch that? He says, somebody here is going to betray me. And their response is, um, is it me? Is it me that's going to do that? So amidst all of the growing and political and religious and social tensions of the past week, the predictions of, that Jesus gives of his death, um, conversations about the end time, the disciples are not clueless that something really horrible is about to happen. And still, when their best friend and teacher says something really bad is about to happen, all they have to say is, it's not me though, right? It's going to be somebody else that I can blame around here. And yet, in all of the disloyalty and the self-concern and the pending betrayal from all these disciples, Jesus continues on, and he chooses to share this meal with them. And I don't think that it can be overstated just how intimate and personal this meal would have felt. We hear it a little bit in the language that it says it's, they're, sharing, they're dipping bread in the same bowl and that they share the same cup. So there's a little bit of that physical intimacy that we hear about. Um, but there's also a, a spiritual intimacy that's cultivated here. Jesus blesses the bread, and so everybody who then eats the bread receives that blessing, right? There's intimacy in the fact that it's the Passover tradition. And so this meal is commemorating a time where their Jewish, Jewish ancestors uh, experienced a, an enormous amount of suffering and dis displayed very... Um, deep and sincere faith in the midst of it. Um, even in the lives of the disciples, Jesus has set a precedent for extraordinary meals, even in the last few years of his ministry. He feeds the 5,000, and he eats with sinners and tax collectors. So meals for Jesus are not just casual get-togethers, but they're very meaningful experiences of sharing cultural life together. 
And so in the same way, the Last Supper is not just an ordinary meal that is being shared between friends, but Jesus' choice to share this meal with them, with all of these people who are going to leave him, is a demonstration of his very deep love and care for each individual at that table. Over the last few years, um, as I've been growing up and living on my own, uh, one of the things I've had to learn is how to cook for myself um, because I'm trying to be an adult. Um, But these these days, it's really easy to, like, look up a recipe on your phone, on Pinterest, and have try something new um, that somebody on the Internet has told you how to cook. Um, or if you're like me in college, you'll just eat a lot of scrambled eggs. Um, but I was finding that I was really missing a lot of the meals that I grew up eating, um, the, the things that my mom and dad used to make and the ways that they used to make them. And so whenever I would go home for a break in college, I would say, can you teach me how to make these things? Because um, I don't, I don't want to just eat scrambled eggs forever. Uh, and so I would ask them to teach me how to make some of their classic meals. Um, but every time, I would always get a little bit more than just, oh, here's how to make it. You get this ingredient and you put it together in this way. Um, I would always get a lot more. I would get stories from my dad about the way that his mom and his grandma used to make this dish and what it was like growing up as a kid where he was from. I would get to hear the thought processes of my mom who never follows a recipe ever and it's always, oh, add a little bit of this and a little of that and if it tastes like this, you've added too much of this. Um, And so preparing these meals with my, preparing these meals with my parents wasn't just a simple lesson and eating together. It was so much more of that. My parents poured their whole selves into teaching me these rhythms of their lives, right, and their special traditions. Um, that are deeply ingrained into their family life and who they are as people, right? And so this time represented so much more than just sharing a meal, but they were inviting me into this common family narrative and this intimate sharing, not just of food, but of ourselves and of our lives together. So in the same way, the Last Supper, it's far more than just a shared meal for Jesus and his followers. This is the final opportunity for this group to gather together and share their lives together, right? There's a New Testament scholar named R.T. France who I thought said it really well. He said, the final phase of this drama, which will eventually become the story of Jesus alone against the authorities, begins with Jesus and his closest disciples together as, as they have been throughout the gospel. Ever since the first calling of the Galilean fishermen in chapter one, this has not simply been the story of Jesus, but the story of Jesus and his disciples, a close-knit task force who have traveled, lived, slept, and shared resources together. So now they come together for a farewell meal, but much more than that, a last Passover together, and one at which things will be said and done. And at this point in the narrative, Jesus clearly knows how this story will end. He knows that his disciples will leave him, and yet... He chooses to invite them in to share this meal together and to extend blessings to them. And so no matter how the disciples may turn their backs on Jesus after all they have been through, Jesus never turns his back on his disciples. No matter how devastatingly the disciples may fail, even when their failure turns Jesus over to his death, Jesus will continue to meet them with grace and love and compassion and an invitation to relationship.
So after the dinner then, we're reminded yet again of the failure of the disciples. Jesus tells all of his disciples that they will abandon him, and Peter specifically will disown him three times. And the word in Greek for disown here is a really harsh word, um, and it means to completely rid yourself of a previously held association, right? So this isn't vague. This isn't an accident or something a little ambiguous. Oh, Jesus, I don't know if I know him. This is a very real uh, breaking of a relationship, right? And so how could Peter go from being so sure, so sure something like this would never happen to such a clear denial in just a matter of hours, Um, A theologian from the early church, St. Augustine, says, God knows in us even what we ourselves do not know in ourselves. So Peter did not even know in his own weakness when he heard from the Lord that he would deny him three times. And we never learn exactly why Peter made this switch from confidence in Jesus to complete denial in him. Perhaps he was afraid for his own safety. Perhaps he was beginning to realize that things were going to be heating up for Jesus, and maybe Jesus wasn't actually who he said he was going to be. Whatever that reason may have been, Jesus knew even before Peter did that this was going to happen, and yet he invites Peter along with the other disciples into the next event of the Holy Thursday, which is to pray together in the Garden of Gethsemane in his final hours. So this is the second time now that Jesus acknowledges that he knows that his disciples are going to turn on him. And still, he invites them into this intimate moment of deep vulnerability and community. And this time, we hear that Jesus is experiencing very soul-wrenching pain. Uh, Mark 14, verses 32 through 34, says, They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be so deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. And so Jesus' continual inclusion of disciples into moments like this is really not exactly about the disciples. It's not that they are such really good, true friends that they are there or that they have something in their character that keeps them worthy of being around. But this is the continued grace and mercy of God on display. Jesus goes off to pray in his sorrow. And then three times, his disciples fall asleep. And then after this, Jesus is arrested and the disciples are separated from him until Easter which is not a happy ending. After many opportunities to let the disciples prove themselves to be faithful and supportive, they continue to let him down. Not only is Jesus isolated by the Jewish authorities and by the larger community in his most heartbreaking moments of prayer, Jesus is even isolated from his disciples. So I don't know about you, but when I hear this part of the story, I really cringe Jesus warns his disciples over and over and over again for the past few days that they are going to fail him. So don't you think that if, if Jesus was your teacher and friend and you were with him and he said, hey, can you stay awake and pray with me in the garden, that you would stay awake and pray with him in the garden? Or maybe if you fell asleep once and Jesus woke you up and said, hey, did you know you fell asleep? 
you'd get really embarrassed and you'd just like take a lap around the garden so that you wouldn't fall asleep again. I just feel such embarrassment in this, reading this and picturing myself as a disciple, going, oh my gosh, how do they not know what they're doing? And then I have to wonder, what makes me think that I am so incapable of messing up like the disciples are? When I am honest about my own life, there are so many times that I am a lot more aligned with the disciples than I am with Jesus. There are plenty of times that I choose not to spend time with God because I am tired or because I have something else to do. You know, we talk about how the disciples are going to end up arresting Jesus, or abandoning Jesus, excuse me. Um, but after that, Jesus has been arrested. You know, at that point, they maybe are starting to wonder, is this Jesus guy really who he says that he was? I mean, he's getting arrested. He's not with us anymore to encourage us. And I think there are plenty of times when I wonder if God really is as good as God says he is. And I question why God doesn't just come in and fix everything. The unfortunate truth with the disciples is that after time and time again of, of failing, failing to love and support Jesus, they run out of second chances to, to prove that they can be faithful disciples during Jesus' life. However, the good news for us today is that even in our biggest failures, Jesus, in his infinite love and grace and mercy, always extends a second chance to us into relationship with him because the heart of God is always for reconciliation and redemption. And no failure of ours will ever keep God from pursuing us and calling us back. So what does this life of the disciple involve? In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus continually paints the picture of a disciple as someone who is willing to deny themselves, to take up their cross, and follow Jesus faithfully in his teachings and in his example. And the example that Jesus sets throughout this book is one of healing the sick, eating with sinners, caring for children and the sick and the poor, keeping accountable and correcting leaders of the faith, um, and sharing the good news of gospel with every person that they meet along the way. And put simply, following Jesus closely involves faithfully loving our God and loving our neighbors well, even and perhaps especially in those moments of doubt and those moments of stress and fear. So amidst all of the drama of Holy Thursday and all of the disappointing behavior from the disciples and perhaps the discouraging mirror that they hold up for us, there is still hope. Not because of anything that we can do, but because God's heart is always for reconciliation and redemption. And no matter how deeply we fail or we stray away, how many times we need to be called back again, there will always be a place for us in the depths of the garden. There will always be a seat for us at the table in the community of God and an invitation to partake of the blessings of Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.